You know what I mean? I think the first part is saying like, it's okay to not have a life plan. I, I, I tend to be probably for maybe not better for me, but maybe for others really open about kind of my career trajectory. So when I started, my, my family is not an academic family, like at all. And so, you know, when I was in college and I was at the end and I was kind of thinking about what was next, I didn't even know grad school was a thing. Like I, I had never, I, I guess I didn't know where like faculty members came from. <laughs> This is the Once a Scientist podcast. I'm Nick Edwards. As you might know, this podcast is meant to be a resource to help early stage scientists navigate science careers, whether that's in academia or beyond. If you enjoy the podcast, you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get podcasts. You can also follow us on Twitter at underscore once a scientist. Last thing, the podcast is really only useful if it gets into the hands of the people who need it. So please consider sharing it with a friend or colleague, and thanks for listening. All right, I'm sitting with Erin Calipari. Erin is an assistant professor at Vanderbilt. She did her undergrad at University of Massachusetts Amherst. Uh, she uh, apparently is a huge overachiever and did a double major in psychology and then uh, also in biology. She did her PhD at Wake Forest in neuroscience and pharmacology and uh, a postdoc at Mount Sinai, the Icon School of Medicine with Eric Nessler. So Erin, uh, thanks so much for coming on. Appreciate yeah, you. Having thanks me. for having me. Well, it's an honor. Um, you've uh, you you've done a lot of cool things. What, what's it been like for so you you started a, a couple years ago? You have a couple of years of experience. It's, I would imagine that you're probably like up and running, and you have some um, results coming into the lab. Uh, but what's that what's that transition been like? Yeah, you know it's. It's really interesting because you kind of go from being in your own, like in somebody else's lab, right? Where you're working on projects that you're excited about, but they're really kind of their ideas or under their kind of grants and this and that um, to kind of working on things that gets you, they get you excited. So I think that's like the fun, the fun part. And then you kind of go from doing science by yourself, not really by yourself, but like, you know, you're doing most of the project to kind of helping other people and managing multiple people doing projects all at once. And so it's, I don't know, I like the people part of it quite a bit. So my lab is not small. Um, we have uh, five postdocs, a research instructor and two grad students right now. Wow. Um, so we're a pretty big group, but I, I find it really fun to kind of help them develop ideas and kind of work with people on that level. And so that's kind of a new thing for me that I think is exciting. Um, I've always kind of liked grant writing. Um, I like it more when they get funded than when they get rejected. Um, but I like writing a lot and I always have. And so I, I kind of find the, the kind of the fact that my job is quite a bit of writing to be fun. I write grants, I write papers, I, I write all of these things. I review grants and all of these are kind of science writing. And I really, really like that aspect of the job. Oh, that's interesting. I guess I hadn't thought of, I mean, like, what what are the aspects that you like about grant writing? I mean, I'm sure there's frustrating parts as well. Oh, there's frustrating parts. So, like, I don't know. I guess I think, like, there's, like, this fun challenge to taking a scientific problem and making it, like, down, distilling it down to, like, simple, understandable components. So, like, you know, you get in the weeds with something, or I get in the weeds. I get really into the weeds. So my lab laughs. <laughs> I get really excited about, like, reinforcement learning principles and like really old school papers where they were doing this stuff in pigeons and 
that kind of stuff excites me, but that's not great for grant writing because you're getting reviewed by all kinds of people. So your job is to take something you're super excited about and convince a bunch of other people that they should be super excited about it. And then explain to them why this needs to be done and exactly how you would do it to definitively prove what you think. And so I think like there's a couple of challenges, right? The first one is getting other people excited and I get really excited. And so it's kind of fun for me to get other people excited. Hmm. But the next one is figuring out with the tools you have and the questions you have, what questions you can really answer. And so like, there's always a bunch of questions we want to answer, but if we don't have the tools to answer them kind of definitively, it's maybe not the best grant. So this is kind of like fun challenge of saying, okay, what resources do I have? What is my question? And what question underneath that umbrella can I really answer really well with these tools? And how do I kind of get the people around me that I need to help me answer these questions involved to do that? And, and so I think it's, it's, it's this thing that you, you think of it as this like single person thing. You sit down and write a grant, but I kind of think of it more as like group effort. You know, I say, what's my question? Who do I need to help me answer this? How do I kind of get them to help me think about these, these kind of ideas? And so I think it's a fun, I don't know, like exercise in yeah. problem solving. And then I just, For sure. so like my, I just, the writing part of it is, is fun. Like cho- choosing the right word to say what you really want people to understand from that is like, I don't know, it's a fun, it's a fun challenge. But like, I guess my, my one piece of advice is if you hate writing, this is like definitely not the job. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I would imagine. I, I, um, I think that a lot of people brisk at this idea or, or they, they, they just don't in, in science, um, you know, sometimes there's a, uh, I don't know, a, a bias against like talking about things from like a sales perspective or like an industry perspective. But like, honestly, I mean, it's, it's, it's a selling process. You're, you're, you're selling your ideas yeah, to your funding yeah, agencies. It is. And I like to think of it less of like, you know, I think people, it kind of gets a bad name if you think of it as like a marketing thing. Like you're trying to sell somebody like something that isn't good. I think that there's a difference between that yeah. and trying to get somebody excited about something that is a good idea. And yeah. so I like to think of it less as like a, like salesman selling something to somebody in more of a like person getting somebody excited about this really important question. And like, if you can't do that, then it's a, then it's a problem. Like you first have to get excited about it. And if you're not excited about it, no one else is going to be. And so that kind of excitement for me, that's the fun part of science. And then I get to convince someone else that it is really exciting. Yeah. I mean, the same thing is true in, in, in the business world too. It's like, I mean, if nobody wants somebody that's like over, overly salesy and like um, trying to get you to do something that you don't want to do. <laughs> that, that's, that, that's the same. It's the same idea right. where like you're, you're trying to find the right fit. And, and if you can find the right fit and if you can portray it in, in a, in a, um, you know, concise and, and appealing way, then, then it works. Right. Uh, well, otherwise. That, yeah. And I think the big thing that I think maybe the younger people don't always understand is that when you see a really good grant, it's not, some people look and they say, oh, well, it's all grantsmanship. But here's the thing. If you have a bad idea, you can't write it in a way that makes it a good idea. <laughs> So, like, you know, like, it's like putting lipstick on a pig. It's still a pig. Like, you yeah. need to have some solid idea. And then from that idea, then that other stuff becomes really important in getting people excited. But if your idea is just bad to begin with, or it's not feasible with what you have, it doesn't matter how much, you know, glitter that you put on it. It's still not a solid grant. And so I think that sometimes when I was younger, 
I was a little bit more confused and thought, oh, well, you know, there, I, I got into science because I thought, okay, I'm not really into political stuff and like smiling at people. I just want to do my work. And then I kind of had this phase where I was like, oh my gosh, okay, well, some people are really into this kind of selling stuff. But now I kind of realize there's kind of two prongs to it. It's like, you can't sell something bad, but also if no one else is excited about what you're doing, it's really hard to kind of get the community to understand why it's important. So it's kind of both of those things go hand in hand and it's less of a political thing where you're convincing people a bad idea is good and more getting people excited about an idea that you're also excited about. And so that's the, I don't know, that's, that's me is the fun part. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, it's a good way to view it. I think that um, it's, it's easy to be skeptical of those types of things. Right. And, and then, you know, but if you can find a way that is um, that, that's fun for you and, and also like just is consistent with, with, with your values and you actually believe in these ideas, then you're going to be more excited to go out and, and try and get the, get the funding. And, and right. you're going to be more excited to sit down and actually write those things. Right? Well, yeah. And this job, if you're not excited about what you're doing is just not a good one. Like <laughs> it's, it's just, there's a lot of things that are really difficult, right? Like there's, there's flexibility in some aspects, but not others. You know, it takes a lot of work and kind of a lot of different skills, right? Management, public speaking, um, writing, like, like developing ideas, fostering collaborations. And so like some of those things can be really challenging, but like if at the end of the day, a majority of that's not like exciting and, and fun for you, this job is awful. But you know, those little, those hard things like rejection, which I, I am rejected more times than I'm not, you know, those things are less bad when you're excited just every day to interact with people at work. You know, when you're already like, this is hard and then you get rejected, it's a little bit difficult. And my career has had like those ups and downs where there were times where I'm like, this is much harder than I want it to be. And then there are times that were, things were going well and it was easy. But I think that's the thing is sometimes people feel like there's like, this is like the thing for them. And like, that's great. But sometimes people, I think if you're not sure, this can be a really challenging it's a challenging job that you're kind of, you're always learning. You're never the expert. You're an expert in something, but like if you're doing it right, you're always learning new things. So you're always in that like kind of weird, uncomfortable zone where you don't really know things yet. And so that's like, I don't know, that's a fun place for me to be, but for some other people it's not. And so I think that's like the thing to kind of think about as you're going through these careers, like what parts of it make you happy and whether the those things are in the next stage of your career. Yeah. It's in, I, I think that I would imagine at least I, I've never been a PI myself, of course. Um, but there's like an element where you get like the best parts of, of being a scientist and, and don't have to deal as much like firsthand with some of the, the, the things that like, you know, I don't know, like troubleshooting an electrophysiology rig for like 24 hours or whatever. Um, you know, you don't, you're not having to do some of those things uh, in, in some cases, but like in the same sense, like you, you also don't get to do some of those things where like the, the, the hands-on um, like bench work. Uh, do, do you actually go in and do and perform experiments at all still? So this, this, what you just brought up, my partner is also a scientist. Um, he's actually a faculty member at Vanderbilt. We talk about this all the time. So huh. both of us started our careers as analytical chemists. Um, we were doing fast scan cyclic voltammetry. And the thing about it, voltammetry, is there aren't commercially available systems. They just don't exist. So you build all of the different components of the system and there's no one to call for help. And there's this horrifying, like, you have to know how to solder, like, 
you know, breakout boxes together and fix head stages and all these kind of fun parts. And at first it's really horrible because it's terrible and it never works. And then once you figure it out, it's kind of fun figuring out how to like tinker and do all these things and build new systems to do things better than before. And I don't know, that's something I really like about science. And I find in my job now, there's a lot less of that than there was before. And I do kind of miss some of that. Um, yeah. But I also don't miss it sometimes because when it works, it's really fun. And when it doesn't and you're troubleshooting at the end of the day and it still doesn't work, that's horrible. Um, so I think there are parts where I don't miss. I don't miss it at all. But I mean, yeah, I think that's the thing is I, I am not in the lab that much now um, because my group is kind of big. So I spend mm -hmm. a lot of time. So like my, my big thing when I started my lab was that I wanted to, you know, you set these goals for yourself. Goals are really important. And I set like really weird arbitrary goals that are always insane, but kind of fun for me. So when I came and started my lab, I said, my goal is to get every person in my lab independently funded with their own like research project. That's what I'm going to do. And so I spent quite a bit of time helping people develop ideas for grants, um, apply for things like F31s, F32s. Um, and so I spent a lot more time doing that. <laughs> yeah. Why, why, why? Why is that such an important goal for you? Um, so when I started my career back in the day, um, I think one of the things that was really important was my graduate advisor made me submit an F31 like during my rotation, which at the time I thought she was crazy and out of her mind. And I think to some extent, expecting me to be able to do that, which I was not capable, <laughs> was, was maybe crazy. Um, but there was this really important learning process for me that happened really early on. It, it made me conceptualize my project in a way that when I started running experiments, I really understood why I was running them, not just that I was running them, which I think kind of shaped the, my entire trajectory, my whole career. And it also gave me kind of, you know, the whole thing about my job now is all I do is grant write all day. And so it started me my first year of grad school. Okay, your first grant was not discussed. What does that mean? What does the study section do? How do you get discussed? What are these summary statements? How do I respond to them? What do they really mean by what they're saying? Because it's almost like sometimes a code language. Mm -hmm. And so then like I got to respond to reviewers that helped me refine the way that I was doing studies in my entire grad like career. And basically when I got to my postdoc, my, I got my K award, my K99 in, I think it was my first year, maybe my, the beginning of my second year of my postdoc. And the reason I did is because I had already written a bunch of grants in my grad school. And so it was kind of this big thing for me that kind of gave me this experience, but not just like grant experience, but like more than that, kind of how to think about science, how to put together figures that help people understand why you're doing what you're doing, how to put together figures that make people understand why it's important. And so I spend a lot of time with that because it helps me to train my people how, in a formal way, how to think about these problems. What are the caveats? How do you write? How do we do science writing? What should figures look like? And it kind of does that in this kind of like fun, densely packed period of time before the submission. Huh. And, uh, and, you know, they're all kind of horrified to start, but like we have templates for grants that have been funded and, and I think it really helps them. And then what happens is they get funded and now they have a project that is theirs, that they feel like is their own. And there's nothing more motivating in science than doing work that is something you're invested in as an individual. And so yeah. I think what it does is I think it makes their science better. It makes them feel better about the results because they're theirs. 
And it really helps them develop as an independent scientist. So when they go to the next level, they already have these skills that not everybody as a PI teaches. And so I don't know. And here's the thing. When they get funded, it's good for me. I'd be lying if I didn't say that. Um, but it's better for them because I can pay them, but now I don't have to. But also they get extra money for travel. It means they get to go to more meetings. They can buy a new computer. They're in the system. So, I mean, I spent a lot of time doing that. And, I, and it, you know, here's the thing. It takes time away from my papers and grants that would help me individually. But I think in the long run, it probably does ultimately help me more. Um, but then it helps all of that. And I think that that's the most important part of my job is developing the next generation of scientists, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, it seems like it's a, a, a great way to um, also help them to develop into, like, I mean, it, it's, it's, it's kind of like greasing the wheels for what's going to happen later, right? So, so that like when, when they're writing the paper up, I mean, they, they've, they're, they've already kind of like exercised those muscles. I mean, if they're a postdoc, they've, they've done that a little bit in grad school already, but um, especially for like a new PhD student, uh, you know, they're not just jumping in and being told what to do. They're, they're actually there. It's, it's almost like you, they've got a roadmap ahead of them. And then, um, and, and then like oh, yeah. once they start generating the results, they can start, they can synthesize them and, and they know how to write, write up those results. Well, yeah, exactly. And honestly, even for postdocs, I mean, when I take postdocs, one of the things that I really look at is I say, okay, one, what do you bring to my lab? Obviously, like, uh, you know, I'm hiring somebody. But I think the bigger thing for me is like, how do we synergize to kind of make science that helps both me and them? And so I think that grant writing for postdocs too is many of the people I hire are coming from different fields. So I don't hire people, I, I will, but like more of the people I hire are from fields that are tangentially related to mine. So one of my first, um, um, hires in my lab as a, as a research instructor was a, um, a computational psychologist. Hmm. So his background is computation and learning theory. And, you know, we do a lot of that kind of stuff, but like he still was coming in to in vivo signal processing and that kind of stuff. Uh, another person I hired was a behavioral pharmacologist who had some experience with microdialysis, but not a lot with indicators and things like slice voltammetry. And so like those postdoc writing experiences, you get maybe less out of the science writing, but you still get the conceptualization. So maybe the writing part goes faster, but you still need to think about the big picture historical context for the next studies you're doing. And I still think it gives you that kind of that angle, um, which is good. And here's the other thing. Again, my job is all grant writing. If you absolutely hate every minute of writing a grant, then, then we sit down and talk and say, okay, well, let's talk about a career that you wouldn't have to do as much of this. So I think it's a good learning experience, even for people who don't go into academia, because you still have to write an industry. You basically have to do science writing everywhere. And the question is, how much do you like this part of it? How do we figure out what you're excited about so that we can shape your kind of training to help you get where you want to go, right? If you yeah. don't want to be an academic physician, that's fine with me. But let's figure out early on where you want to go. Do you want to do science writing? Do you want to do industry? Like, how do we figure out ways to get you the experience that helps you get there? And I think that first grant writing process can kind of help people figure out what they want. And so it's, I think it's good from that perspective as well. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, I like that. So, so, I mean, I think that we, we should certainly talk about this because um, like, how, how, do, how do you f help people figure out like what they want to do? I mean, it's such, such a complicated process. Like I, I still don't know what I'm doing. You know? Oh, I have no <laughs> idea what I want to do. I, well, I think the first part of it is helping people be comfortable admitting that they don't know. 
Yeah. You know what I mean? I think the first part is saying like, it's okay to not have a life plan. I, I, I tend to be probably for maybe not better for me, but maybe for others really open about kind of my career trajectory. So when I started, my, my family is not an academic family, like at all. And so, you know, when I was in college and I was at the end and I was kind of thinking about what was next, I didn't even know grad school was a thing. Like I, I had never, I, I guess I didn't know where like faculty members came from. I just like <laughs> didn't understand. And I was doing some research in, like I started volunteering in this um, psychology lab where I was looking at um, MDMA um, or ecstasy effects on, um, on like rodent behavior. And I kind of was getting to the end and, and the PI at the time, he was like, oh, are you going to go to grad school? And I basically was like, what's that? And he, <laughs> which is insane. I mean, this is the thing, right? Like, so I am where I am now where in that was in, I mean, I graduated college in 2009. So it wasn't that long ago, like 10 years ago, I like had no idea this was even an option. Yeah. And so I think that, you know, you don't have to know where you're going to be. You have to like be open to figuring out what you like and what you don't like and putting yourself in a position to end up somewhere where the things you like about your job are there. And so for me, he was like, you should go to grad school. And I was like, okay. And he helped me apply to the grad schools. And I ended up at Wake Forest because I went on an interview and I thought it was just like a great place. And they did kind of work I was excited about. I had never heard of voltammetry in my life. And hmm. I ended up in a voltammetry slash analytical chemistry lab because I felt like Sarah Jones, who was my grad advisor, was a great mentor and understood kind of me and what I needed and at the time. And so, you know, I didn't go into grad school be trying to become an analytical chemist who studies dopamine. I went into grad school with an open mind, knowing what I was excited about and knowing what I definitely didn't want to study. And then kind of seeing what opportunities were there and then following the path of least resistance based on people, not on science. I, I, I kind of picked places where I was the happiest because I was kind of too naive to know what I wanted. And honestly, it was a huge deal because when you pick a place based on the mentorship and the person that's going to help you get to the next level, that is a way better recipe for success than trying to shove your like self through some hole that you thought you wanted to be in that you don't really know. And so I think, I mean, that's kind of how my career has gone. So I try to help people be open-minded to kind of new options and the realities of what my job is as opposed to trying to pretend that it's perfect all the time. You know, this is what I struggle with. This is what I like. Is that what you want? Here's my friends at other schools that maybe have more teaching. Is that something you're interested in? Cause I don't have to teach. I still do. Cause I like to, but, um, and trying to get them kind of exposure to people at different kinds of institutions. That's great. It, it, it's really helpful to hear kind of that, that honesty and, and, um, you know, to have somebody that you look up to that is like, hey, you know, here's how I came about this. It wasn't like all perfectly planned out because sometimes people think that they they look at somebody's career trajectory and they think like, oh, man, they must have like just really um, like known very early on and, and, and made these like uh, very intricate, detailed strategies and plans, but sometimes it's just really like kind of being like led by the next interest and the what and and like the the thing that's most exciting to you at, at any given right. point. Or, um, right. Well, I think being open to taking a different path is really important. I think I think one of the things that you run into in academia quite often is that a lot of people did kind of know early on, and a lot of people like again, my family. I there no. I'm the first PhD in my whole family. Like at all. Yeah, tell me about that. 
Yeah, so I mean, here's the thing that's really weird about this, right? Is that you have no blueprint for what a PhD looks like. You have none. And here's the great thing about it. It's, it's good and bad. On one side, it means you haven't been planning your entire life for this, like some people have. On the other side, you're not tied down by what the expectations of the trajectory look like because you have no idea. And looking back on my career, some of the decisions I made I would make again with what I know now, but had I really known what other people were doing, I may not have, I just did what felt right. And the kind of ability to just do what I wanted at that time, I think is what made my career trajectory a little bit different than other people's. And here's the thing, somebody from a first generation family as, as this person, I was not going to outcompete the person who was doing summer fellowships in high school, MIT for a faculty position, doing what they were doing wasn't going to happen because they had a head start. But, you know, I took a different path and never tried to be that. And I think what you can start doing is seeing that like that, those kind of unique paths, those they're not bad. They're just different. And sometimes you make really valuable contributions to the scientific community doing that. And so for me, if I hadn't been at a school like Wake Forest, that was super me like mentorship focused and really supportive at the time when I was there, I would not be here. Hmm. So I think it's really important to understand kind of where you are at a specific time. Like as someone who didn't even know that uh, like a uh, assistant professor job at Vanderbilt was an option, had I been at a school that was like, you need to produce right now, figure it out yourself, I would have failed. And yeah. so I think that kind of thing is really important to know about yourself or, and sometimes you don't even know, you just end up in the right place with the right people and you have to, you know, send them a thousand emails and gifts and say, thank you for dragging me along a path. I didn't even know I was on and making sure that I had jumped through all the right hoops to have these opportunities. I mean, my grad advisor making me submit a grant my first year, of my PhD, I didn't even know what those grants were, but her doing that put me on a trajectory to be where I am. So she was looking for, out for me, even though I had no idea what I was doing. Yeah. So, so it sounds like um, your PhD was, um, there was a little bit more kind of hands-on involvement early on uh, than you might get at like a, um, a, a huge research, like focus school. You know, it's funny right? because the hands-on involvement was really specific. So my, my, my PhD mentor is like my, I like love this woman. She's like my best friend now. We like talk all the time. <laughs> um, the hands-on was less day-to-day, -day, like holding my hand in the lab. And it was more career development-wise, like lots of conversations about like what her job looked like and openness about like the good and the bad. And the department, my lab, my grad lab had 11 people in it. So it wasn't small. Hmm. Um, it wasn't big either. But the department, I think, had a really big mentorship kind of component. So like it wasn't just her that I became close with. There were many other faculty members there who are actually like colleagues and collaborators now for me that I think the biggest thing was they treated their grad students like equals, because I think the biggest thing to know as a young scientist is that the people above you aren't smarter than you. They just have more experience. <laughs> and honestly, Such an important and point. It's true. I mean, my but my grad students now, some of them know stuff I don't know because they came from undergrads that focused on chemistry or that focused on something that I don't know. And I go to them and say, hey, I haven't done this before. You did 8 million Northern blots. Can you like help set this up? And they're like, yeah. And so I think that the thing about where I went to grad school was is that the people were humble enough to recognize they didn't know everything. 
And that created a unique environment where students weren't afraid, afraid to contribute because they were respected. And so yeah. it helped me kind of go out on a limb and say things and meetings and things like that. And it helped me build up my confidence. And then when I went to the next place, I was okay with being wrong. I was okay with not knowing everything because I knew they didn't know everything and that was fine. Yeah. I remember, uh, when I first started in, in a lab and, and, uh, you know, being around postdocs and, and my PhD lab was pretty big. Um, and I hadn't had a ton. I, I, I was also a first generation scientist. Um, and I hadn't had, I hadn't had a ton of experience in, in lab even before I started my PhD. And, and so when I go to lab meetings and people would be like citing off papers and, and I'd be like, what in the world? How do you remember this like fact? Or how do you even know all these things that you're just like, kind of spouting off? And, and I, and I remember thinking like, that's not even possible. I'll never get to that point. And, yeah. uh, and, and, and by the end of my PhD, I was like doing it. Right. Well, <laughs> and that's so the crazy, that's the crazy thing, right? It's like, like the, the biggest barrier to people learning things is their inability to admit what they don't know. That mm. is the number one thing. And I think that I, I knew that in grad school, my postdoc was actually a really big thing, place for me learning this. So, so my, one of my first, my first like week in, in my postdoc. So I, I go from an analytical chemistry lab that's like, we're talking about like redox reactions and scan rate and all this crazy like Faradayic current and stuff. So like, I know a lot about what I know, <laughs> but I being me thinking I can do whatever and not really knowing what I'm getting myself into, I go to a postdoc that is a genetics lab. <laughs> like what? <laughs> Why did they do this? So we're sitting in the first lab meeting and there's 20 people, so this is not a small lab. It's a huge lab. And they're talking about um, sequencing. So I, I still don't, like, it's, uh, they're showing these heat maps. I have no idea what they are. I'm like, that's just a bunch of colors. Like, what does that mean? And then they're, like, talking about, like, how they use, like, certain alignment tools. And they're like, oh, we use Cuff-Diff, da 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 And I guess I looked lost. And, and my, my Eric Nessler, my postdoc advisor at the time, like, looks. And I, he can obviously tell that I have no idea what's going on. And he's like, Aaron, do you know what that is? And I, like, at least knew enough to be like, I got no idea what you guys are talking about. So he's like... <laughs> Can you, somebody in the room, can they explain to Aaron what we're talking about? And they, someone tries to explain it and they're like, oh, well, it's just part of the top hat suite of da, 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 da. And I'm like, I didn't even know the words they used to explain to me the things before that I didn't know. <laughs> and I like went home at night, like talking to my partner and I'm like, I'm going to be fired from this lab. Like, this is not good. I, I can't even wikipedia what i don't know because i don't know the words that they use to describe no, and it might not even be on wikipedia <laughs> yeah, I'm, like, I'm like what do i do and so then then i guess like not that long later i'm sitting in a talk and i have absolutely no idea what's going on and i'm just thinking like i'm in so far over my head and eric raises his hand and is like i have no idea what you're talking about can you explain it to me and here I see this, this really accomplished, successful, very intelligent man, just like sitting here in a talk being like, I have no idea what this means. And I realized like after that, that every time he was okay with admitting he didn't know, he learned something new because he would yeah. ask, I don't know what that means. Please explain it to me. And so like from then on, I think the rest of my postdoc, I was like, okay, well, if he can do that. I can do that. And so I went through, and I think the first year, everyone thought I was like the biggest idiot in the world because I was just not afraid to ask, what does this mean? I have no idea what you're talking about. And, you know, I knew that people probably would think I was stupid for a while, but I figured at the end of my postdoc, 
I will know the answers to all these questions and I will be so much better for it. And I think it was like a huge deal. And so I think one of the biggest things is that when you have this, these really, really smart people, they're smart because they're not afraid of not knowing stuff. And because of that, they learn more things because they're not afraid to ask. And so I think that's a huge component of honestly any field is just being confident enough of what you know to be okay to ask. Like Eric doesn't understand analytical chemistry. He has no idea. Like I could show him voltammetry data all day and he would be like, I don't know what this means. And it's, so it's okay yeah. for me to not understand every aspect of all of genetics. Like that's the thing, right? You know, a small subset of what you know and you have to be confident in that, but then okay with the other stuff you don't know so you can learn. And I don't know, I had really good mentors that were very different, but taught me different things about how kind of to learn and how to approach science. And I think that they're both like really, really unique, but like, great in different ways. And it was a huge part of kind of shaping how I mentor people now. Yeah, I think that's a, it's a really good point. Cause I, cause it's like, um, you know, I, I, I don't, I, not to get like too abstract here, but like, you know, talking about like intelligence and, and like what makes somebody smart. And I think those are really interesting questions. <laughs> and, uh, um, and it's not always what we what we think. Like a lot of times, people think that like the person that can spout off all the facts is really smart, and and uh, that's that's the intelligent person. Um, well, maybe that just means they have a really good memory for like uh, arcane things that really don't necessarily matter. Uh, but maybe they are really smart and they've kind of figured out how 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 things work. And so like it, there, there's this like really kind of I, I don't know. I think it's really important that. Um, you know, at every at any stage, you you need to be able to kind of identify what what your what's your problem, what are you trying to go after, and then like break it up into like the main components, and and then figure out okay, uh, I have this problem. There are these three things, these three pillars of things that I need to uh, understand. I don't have a I, I have a, an idea of what this one is, but these two I don't have a, a clue, and right. and and uh, and and then you know like find out where that information is and and, the, and then you're building a model essentially that that it's this kind of problem solving process and that's what i think science is science like i i've talked about this so many times and probably people are like going to be super annoyed by it cuz like i probably talk about the same things over and over to be honest but uh <laughs> but I, th I think that it's really important that like that's what science is that's how we that's how we uh build up knowledge and the actual knowledge is not as important as the process to which at which you get to that knowledge. Oh, Does I totally agree. And actually, this is something when I'm hiring people, I one of the big things I look for is what people have done with the resources they have. I think the biggest thing that's predictive of, of success in the future isn't just like what paper you got, but what things, what questions you answered with the tools you have. I will hire somebody who's only published, you know, a few papers in like, you know, behavior only journals, if I look at their career trajectory and I say they came from a psychology department, had two opera boxes and answered some of the most innovative questions I've ever seen. Like, you know, yeah. I, I was with, again, Dave Roberts in grad school. He, he literally only had opera boxes. That was all he had. And this man was publishing high impact papers with nothing but opera conditioning for drugs. Like, I mean, here's the thing they, people have been doing opera conditioning for drugs for 50 years. 
If mm-hmm. you with still only those tools are answering new and innovative questions, you are brilliant, right? And yeah. I think those people, when you give them more tools, or maybe they don't want them. Dave didn't care because he had everything he needed to answer his questions. But if you have students coming in and you say, great, now you have these new tools, those people are going to do a lot with them. There are yeah. also people who come and there's nothing bad about this, but maybe you're in a lab that does a hundred things, right? And you get a paper that has a hundred techniques, but you don't really understand any of those techniques. Somebody did this, somebody did that. I think those people struggle a lot more to ask good scientific questions because it wasn't about the process, right? It wasn't about the question. It was how do we just like, we'll just do this with 10 different things and see what happens. And so, I don't know, I guess I bias. I think those are two different ways to do science and there's, there's nothing wrong with them. Yeah. It's just that I bias towards the other way where, you know, you do techniques as needed, not just to do them. And I think that's what I find fun. Like some of the stuff I, I do is like, could have been done in the eighties. I mean, like one of my recent papers, I, um, I use this drug that like no one's used since like 1990. Um, it's, it's called cocaine with thiodide. It's basically cocaine, but it has a- Oh uh, yeah, I know it. Yeah. yeah, so it can sort of the, cross the blood-brain barrier. And I I actually was just like, oh, we need to use this. And I remember, you know, at the time, my postdoc advisor was just like, what is this? And I was like, actually, hilariously, this drug that no one's used in a decade is the best way to answer this really, this question we have. And so- I don't know. I try to bias more towards the question than the tools. As these tools come out, there's new tools like every day. Like if you try to incorporate those tools, every time a new tool comes out, you never answer a question. Like, I don't know. Yeah. The fun part to me is the question, the process and the questions, not just the fancy stuff. I think so. I, I, I agree with you. And, and um, sometimes as a, that's, that's kind of a learning process to figure out like your way of, of answering things scientifically, because I think that, you know, like you said, both ways can work and, and there's other ways too, right? Like, um, the one thing that I, that I learned through my PhD was like, I needed the, the, the thing that unlocked things for me around three years into graduate school was I had decided to focus on a single method that, um, I could do like really high throughput experiments with, which to me was like slice, uh, patch clamp electrophysiology. And so, um, I could do I like that. You call that high throughput. That's hilarious to me. That's well, like really, <laughs> you're like, Oh, the easy thing I did. <laughs> I got, I got pretty good at it, but like, yeah. I mean, but, but like, it's maybe it's not that it's like high throughput. Um, it's, it's not high throughput when you compare it to other things, but like the ability to like pivot and, 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 uh, and just say, okay, well, I have all these drugs on a shelf and like I can test the pharmacology uh, on, on, on any given brain slice and just, and see what happens and, and like, and go through and, and do, you know, 10 experiments in, in uh, um, a couple of weeks and find something and hopefully you find something that is interesting and then just like kind of like pull that apart, tease it apart. And then like you make something interesting out of something that, that is just like a random uh, observation. So I, I don't know. I think that there's a lot of different ways to do it. Uh, but it's, I, like it's that really... way as well. I think that was something I opened up to in my postdoc. I think when I started in grad school, we didn't have as much like money and resources. So like we were really, really goal oriented in the mm-hmm. experiments we were running. And then when I got to my postdoc and there was a little bit more money for maybe some discovery based things that were a little bit less, I don't want to say they're not hypothesis driven because they are, but they're a little bit less like one question is the answer yes or no. And a little more like, does this change something in this system? 
And then you find that thing and then go into those really detailed, okay, well, it changes, you know, calcium flux. What is that? Is it channel conductance? Is it number of receptors? Is it receptor subtypes? Is it what cell type? Like, I think that that is like those things kind of are really good together. And I think that's where you see the most powerful kind of papers, right? These discovery approaches where you identify something we maybe not wouldn't have guessed or hypothesized. And then you go into the nitty gritty details of exactly how that's happening. I think that's kind of the exciting part of science is figuring out how to merge those. But I think sometimes people kind of miss the mark there. I think sometimes people misinterpret what's impactful and they say, well, we're just going to single cell sequence everything. And Mm -hmm. it's like, okay, but like all that data without a conceptual framework is really, really maybe cool. But then how do we move science forward? Like, how does that change how we think about the brain? Um, So that's always my big push is like, why is this exciting? Not just because it's a tool. What is exciting? Like if you were going to tell your mom, your mom doesn't care about single cell sequencing, but if you found something, you're going to tell your mom, like, why is this exciting? That's how I always start the grants. Like for someone who doesn't care about technology, like why should we be doing this? And I think that's like such an important part of science that sometimes is overlooked, right? The why. Totally. We can. My, my, my chair, my, one of my favorite, um, comments like someone ever said to me is that in one of my thesis committee meetings, I said something like, we're doing this experiment. And they said, well, why? And I was like, well, no one's ever done it. And the chair of the department said, well, no one's ever done it in a polar bear, but does anybody care? And it's it's <laughs> like, really awesome. funny, like one-off statement. But now I like think about this, like every day of my life, like just that no one's ever done it isn't a good rationale. Right. And so yeah. like, grants, a lot of times you'll see people say this, well, no one's ever done it. Well, and then I just think, well, no one's ever done this in a polar bear, but does it matter? But it's kind of like shaped how I ask questions now. Like just that no one's done it or that we can isn't a good reason to do it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, That's funny. Um, I think, I think early on though, you're just like that. That's the scary part about being an early stage scientist is that like, you don't have any idea how to, um, like you don't know what's going to work and you don't like have a methodology. You don't even know if anything is ever going to work. Right. Yeah. Oh, that's, I think the thing everyone kind of has always asked. So my grad school is a weird, weird ride. So, so we didn't have tools to get into like the really, really fancy journals. Um, so we basically just asked solid questions and published stuff. That's like what we did. And so people ask me a lot, they'll be like, okay, but like, how were you productive? Like, how did you know like this and that? And I think the biggest thing for me is, is figuring out when to not, when to not or when to quit. You know, the sunk cost fallacy is like the thing that I see hold the most people back. Like people say, oh, I started this project, so I have to finish it. But sometimes you start stuff and you didn't have all the information or you were just wrong. And sometimes wrong is exciting. Like sometimes experiments don't give you the answer you want. And that is still great. Sometimes yeah. things just don't work. And like if figuring out when to persevere to make something kind of impactful work or when to like not is a really, really important skill. And it's not, it's really hard to teach someone because you don't want to give up too early, right? Because mm-hmm. you have to like try to do these hard things. But you also don't want to like just be like digging a hole that's like not ever going to lead to anywhere. And so I think the biggest thing of successful people is that they know and they're good at identifying when to just cut your losses. And, and sometimes you have to do that. Sometimes you get data. It's just like, it's not good. And you have to just like be like, that sucks. 
Yeah. I think the same thing is true with your career though. <laughs> like, uh, I, I've, I've done a decent amount of, like, I've, I've worked with some people, you know, to get into different types of careers. So like consulting is, I, I, I worked, you know, as a consultant at, at Boston Consulting Group. And, um, that's one of the hardest things for me is when, when people, I know that they have potential and they're like, but I have to put in so much work, you know, maybe a hundred hours, even just to get ready for, for doing this one thing. And, and, and how do I know that that's going to pay off? And, and I always, and it's, that's the hardest thing is like, I don't know. Like that's something you have to determine about yourself in a way. Like uh, what are the options available open to me right now? Uh, you know, with within like you know within academia, potentially within science, like, uh, am I really on the on the right track to be able to have that tenure track job? And be honest with yourself. Uh, right. And- well, it's hard to be honest with yourself, right? Because nobody wants to admit that they're not. But the other thing is like some of it's. I mean, some of it's random. I know, like total I mean, luck. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think anybody wants to hear that because it makes people feel like their hard work wasn't like like worth something, but like, it's total luck. I mean, like my year that I went on the job market was at the height of the opioid epidemic or right when it was starting. And a bunch of schools had invested a ton of money in starting um, substance use disorder centers. People were looking to hire someone in the substance use disorder fields. Um, It's when optical imaging approaches like fiber photometry that are a little bit, not technically imaging, but a little bit more user-friendly had just come on the scene and mm-hmm. people wanted somebody who could do them. Um, again, I'm an analytical chemist and nobody, if anybody wants to do it, you have to find one because you can't buy stuff online. <laughs> and uh, I also had experience with big data. So like essentially I happened to at the time when all of these things were kind of hot I happened to by again, like I'm saying, by accident, I did not think that when I was on the job market, this would be the case. I mm-hmm. was in grad school and went to this lab because I thought it would be cool. And it was just right place, right time. You know what I mean? Right question. And people were excited. And I got lucky. And it wasn't like I planned it. And yeah. the year before me and the year after me, there were about half as many tenure track job postings in neuroscience. Oh gosh. It just yeah. happened to be the year that I decided to go in the job market because it was the year my K I got my case for and it was going to be funded that that happened to be the year that had the most job postings. So it's just, you know, there's just so much stuff that goes into these jobs that's not in your control. And exactly. 100%. deciding like where you could be and what's your backup plan is like, I mean, that's the thing, right? It's like how, how you kind of see how you're doing this, what, what you want to do. Is this what you want to do? How you can prepare reaching out to people who have done it before to put yourself in the best position. But even then sometimes it doesn't work out. Right. Yeah. So. You, you kind of, I mean, I don't know. This is the, I, I'm, I've always been like good. I'm okay with the mechanics of, of, co- uh, of, of helping somebody to like think about a problem and, and, uh, and to help them kind of perform um when i've when i've helped people like with this consulting um stuff and 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 you know i think it's similar across any different thing uh, whether you're going into academia or whatever but um so there's so there's like the things that you need to do that are obvious and and like you just have to learn those skills but like there's so many extrinsic things that that really you can't real you, you can't control and um all you have to all, all you can do is 
control the things that you can't control. It's just, I mean, the most, it's like, it's like the stupid yeah. statement of like, it is what it is, which I say all the time. Um, but like, it's true. Okay. Like you just need to focus on the things that like you have the ability to make a difference on and, and like, and trust that something's going to work out. And sometimes it doesn't, sometimes like it, it, it won't, but like you have to push for something. Right. And, and like concentrate your efforts. And sometimes a lot of times you're going to fail or not reach your goals. And what you do in those situations, I think, is what really defines successful people. Hmm. You know, when I was younger, um, we, we, my family moved a lot. So we had moved and I wasn't super thrilled about it because I was like 10 or something. And we moved and then we were there for like two and a half years and my dad gets like fired. And so he's like, his career isn't one where you can just like go get another job that easily. Your dad so, is a coach, right? Yeah, he's a basketball coach. So like you get fired. You don't just like go apply. Like there's not like, it's like there's only certain times of year where people are hiring. Oh, wow. And it's like depends on how other people are doing. So it's kind of like academia. It's like there's job cycles and it's there's a little randomness into how teams are doing and what jobs are available at the time. And I mean, what he did was he left a place where he was doing well. He went to a place that was like bigger time and thought it was going to go well and it didn't. And I don't know, just watching him just like not give up and just start over essentially. And then seeing where he ultimately ended up, it was like, you know, he always talks about it and he's like, you know, all of that stuff kind of got me to where I am now. And at the time it was a little bit horrifying, but you just got to like keep going and like kind of change your path. And the people who are too resistant to that are never going to kind of bounce back from these kind of things. But like, if Hmm. you look and say, okay, didn't go great. That's not what I planned, but like, okay, what are my options? How do I move forward? Who can help me with this? Let me talk to people who can kind of give me advice on the best ways to go forward. I think those are the people that are successful because none of this stuff is, you can't plan. It's not like I planned 10 years ago to be here. Honestly, I didn't even think about it. I was just kind of plugging along, just in grad school. I guess I'll do a postdoc now. Then I did a postdoc and was like, the beginning of my postdoc, actually, I was like, I don't know if I'm going to go to academia because like the stars have to align. And I applied because they did. But that wasn't like the only thing on my kind of map. I I actually, I actually got a lot of teaching experience. I'm an idiot, but I was like almost, I was adjuncting while I was postdocing. So I was working like insane amount and it was like, oh my gosh, it was like an hour and a half subway, but they also paid me extra money, which was like a huge deal because New York is expensive. (laughs) So uh, I did that because I thought, okay, I actually really like teaching but to get a job at a teaching school, you have to have like teaching evaluations, not just mm. like I high five somebody teaching a, like a, a first year class, like you have to actually have the evaluations. So I did that because I thought, okay, well, if this doesn't work out, there's a lot of teaching positions. I can get teaching experience. I could show that I have course planning experience. And so I did all that. Now here's the funniest thing. I ended up at Vanderbilt and there's no teaching. So I did all this stuff and none of it ever like matters. Now, here's the thing though. Teaching made my public speaking a thousand times better because there is nothing more horrifying than standing up in front of a group of like 20 year olds and like anything. So now I stand up in front of scientists. I'm like, oh, you guys, like you guys aren't going to judge me like undergrads do. So I'm like, totally fine. So (laughs) my teaching evaluations were like a wild ride. Like you wear too much black, lots of appearance comments. You look too young. In New York? Oh yeah. I know that's a cool thing. 
New York. I'm like, we all are wearing black. Like this is not that <laughs> Thanks. Um, but yeah, no, I think, I think for me, I planned for multiple options with like the main goal in mind, but like backup plans if it didn't work. And I have a partner in science. So when I was on the job market, it was for two positions. And my partner is not like, he's maybe more expensive than I am because he does a lot of optical stuff. And so we needed two tenure track positions and it's hard, right? Because there's a million other people they could hire. So why hire two when they could hire one or, you know, some schools really wanted both, but they don't have the money to hire two. And so it's just, you know, you like wake up some days and I feel like we look at each other and say, oh my gosh, how did this work out? Like, we're so happy. Like how, how, like, what did we do to deserve this? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I think that it's, 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 um, useful to cultivate those, cultivate those outside interests, um, and to think about experience in other fields, um, and, and, and to try some things out that are not directly relevant to science, because, um, sometimes those things can actually be really interesting, more, more interesting than you know, um, if, if you haven't done them before, but also like, um, science is a very multifaceted, uh, career, uh, like being a PI is a very multifaceted profession. And so, uh, any experience that you can get that like is not your everyday experience of like being in a lab and, and, uh, doing, doing experiments and analyzing data, it's going to help you because the, the communication angle and the management angle and, and all those things really come into play when you're a PI, right? Oh yeah. The thing is, when I started my lab, the stuff that set me up the most for success was not anything I thought it would be. So I played sports in college. That was more of a driver of a lot of the stuff that I do and how I manage big groups of people than anything. What'd you play? So, um, I played basketball at UMass. Don't look oh, up cool. my stats. I wasn't good. I just, I, I, now as I get older, it's like, neat that I played when I was younger. It was like embarrassing. I scored like three points my entire career there. Um, You're better than me. I guarantee it. <laughs> and I'm, I'm six foot four. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I played basketball in college and it was like a huge, a huge thing because it teaches you how to work as a team, how to do stuff you don't want to do. Oh my gosh. Like study hall and getting up at like 6am to work, like how to push through, like when you have like low motivation, like thinking about, like one of the biggest things for lab success is convincing, and it's not convincing people because it's the truth, but getting people to buy into the fact that when the whole team does well, we all do better. And sometimes what that means is some people sacrificing for the team. And, you know, that doesn't necessarily mean doing terrible, but like helping other people might take away from progress on your project right now. But the fact that everyone is publishing and you can get on other people's papers that is a bigger thing for you in the long run, even though you don't see it right now. Um, and so like these kinds of things are such a big deal, like fit, re- being resilient, like, okay, yeah, you lost a game. Okay. That's part of the game. Like you have to get up and keep going and like how to manage that kind of kind of group that's motivated and like cares about each other and works together towards a common goal is way more important than any of the science stuff you learn. Hmm. Uh, Did yeah. you have like a, um, aspiration aspirations to become like a a basketball player i mean like was what was that like an expectation within your family just to oh, my family like, convinced me that this was like a i love my family so i'll say that first they're great um <laughs> they convinced me that that was like a feasible thing here's the thing i'm not huge and i'm not i was like fine i wasn't like terrible um 
I was just like college basketball is a different game and I'm not like giant. So it was just like, it became apparent like year one that that wasn't a viable career option. I mean, they definitely could have like played in Europe or something. Um, but I, I just like realized like early on that like one, it wasn't something that was like a viable long-term career option. And two, I don't know. I like, as I got older, I got like super angsty about the fact that like, I wanted to like be in a career where I had my own independent kind of ideas and name and all this stuff. And, you know, sports is not like the best way. My family is like well-known in that arena. So I, uh, I decided huh. that I like doing something else would make me happier. And I love science. I mean, I loved it so much. It was like, I, I started undergrad and I was not super committed to academics because I was really into sports and I started taking some science classes and I loved them. They were great. It was studying was fun. Like I, I, I'm such a nerd. I was like, great. So I took as many science classes as I could. I thought I was like gaming the system because all my electives, I make them like the science ones. Like, Oh, my sociology elective would be like drugs in society. And it would you're be doing, about you're doing like, what everyone else doesn't want to do. Exactly. And I thought I was like getting one over on them because I was going to take only science classes. And looking back, I'm just like an idiot. And it was just something that I was passionate about. It was fun. And I, I loved it. And it made me happy. And that's like how I ended up down that path. It wasn't. And again, this goes back to the thing like I my grades, my first few years of college are not great. <laughs> They're, yeah. They weren't great. And they came back to haunt me like a hundred times. Um, I got a D in calculus which is like, honestly, a favor. I shouldn't have gotten a D, should have gotten an F. And that was like on my grants and people were like, why is this person getting this? Well, I didn't even know this was a career. So it also makes you think too, when you come from those kind of experiences about the kind of biases we have against, you know, it's like, okay, I understand you have to evaluate grades, but first gen people don't know their freshman year of college that that grade is going to come back and haunt them a decade later, right? They have no idea. So you have this oh, kind yeah, of perspective totally. too that I think lets me... Yeah. You have no idea. Like you think you're just like skipping like this class. Cause who cares? I'm just going to get my degree. And then you end up in a career where you have to put your grades on your grant application. And the, the person that's reviewing it says, how did this person get a D in calculus? Well, one, because I had no idea what was going on, but two, cause I had no idea that this was that important either. And I don't know, I think it gives me a unique perspective too, to mentor a lot of first gen students who all have these same issues and like how to get around them, what to say in grants to make sure that people understand that like they should view your progress as a trajectory, not as just the numbers and things like that. I mean, I think that kind of experience makes me a little, I don't know, different than maybe some of the other people in academia. And it makes it so that I think I can talk to people who have similar experiences and be like, okay, well, how do we get around this? Yeah, I mean, and, and like it shows, I don't know, I, I agree with you. We, we need to figure out different ways to, to measure these things and to, and because there's, there should be, it's just, I don't know how to do this, but like you, you need to be able to measure the, the trajectory, not not the asymptote in the, in the slope, right? Uh, or, or I guess the slope is the trajectory, but. Um, <laughs> I, know, I know what you mean. But, but like, uh, I, I had a very similar experience where like I, the, I, the first chemistry class I took in college, I got a C on and it was like the only class I'd never gotten a C in my life. And, and like, I'd never like really tried. I didn't know that, that like, oh yeah, yeah. I got to sit down and you actually have to study, you know, because yeah. <laughs> like I'd never studied in, 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 
in high school or, or college. It was my first semester of college. And so like, I got this, I got this grade. I was like, oh, screw this. I'm going, I'm going to go do English literature. So I almost finished my English literature degree. And then I went back to neuroscience and I, and, and, and like when I went back to neuroscience, I took the next class after that chemistry class. And like, by that time I was motivated and I was excited about science. And, and, and I realized like, oh, if I just put in the effort, I can do well. And I got like an A in the next class after that. <laughs> and, oh, and, I had uh, the same experience. I mean, I was in high school in Memphis and we just like didn't have homework. And like I <laughs> studied, like there was like, I just like went to school, took the test, left, that was it. And so I also kind of didn't know that. And I think this is what people take for granted is they don't realize what that means. And I understand we need some metric for evaluating people, right? Because you can't just be like, we're just going to go based on our gut, based on like yeah. some personal statement. I get that. But I think the thing that people don't realize is that all of these metrics, they do have a significant amount of bias. Like maybe people get lucky and they know that they're supposed to do that, but a lot of people don't. And again, like I have a ton of privilege, right? Like I ended up where I am because like there were people who overlooked that. I mean, like my, my partner had, he, he was funny. His, he was homeschooled. So he started college at 14 years old. Um, but instead of high school, he just went to like get his associate's degree. So the funny thing is, even though he was like 16 years old in college, people see the associate's degree on his CV and they say, oh, he got an associate's degree. And oh so there's gosh. a lot of bias against and not intentional. No one's like a bad person or trying to do this, but it's just bias against these kind of non-traditional paths that people don't understand like what they are. And so mm. then you say, oh, well, they got a D in calculus, but there's a difference between a D in calculus, like at the end of college and a D in calculus in the beginning of college when the, we're like learning how to study or we don't know what we want to do yet, or we don't know these trajectories. I mean, if you have families or relatives that have, you know, graduate degrees, they know how this works. Right. And they know that from the day you start in college, all those grades are going to come back. But like your families that didn't get a college degree or that don't use that college degree for anything, they have no idea. Right. And yeah. they don't know what to tell you. They don't know how to help you write a personal statement. They don't know how to apply for graduate school. Like none of the, they're on your own kind of. And so if you have really good mentorship, again, I went to UMass where there were great mentors that were like in, that were there helping me figure out what that meant that were not my family. And it was, I was lucky because I was in a place that had that. And those yeah. people were like reaching out to me to make sure that I took the right classes and I was meeting with them every semester, but some people don't have that either, you know? And, and I think that good scientists, you know, kind of come in all shapes and forms. Definitely. And, and um, I think that, you know, the people that listen to this podcast, um, at least I, you know, I, I know people listen to it. I don't know like who they are necessarily, <laughs> but um, I, I think that there's a certain percentage of them that, that have thought or are thinking about shifting into different things. And, and yeah, um, there's, there is the reality of like your past history and like in performance and, and, um, grade point average. And those, those types of things do matter. But like, um, what, what I think that you can do in order to control those types of things, like, you know, I got, I got, I got to see in chemistry, like my GPA from undergrad was also not that great. Um, and I was a little bit, uh, self-conscious about it for, for a while. Um, but you should always kind of be thinking about like, what are the biases that people might have against me? And, um, and then how can I address those and like tell a storyline? So like, for example, um, my GPA wasn't great, but I worked like my entire way through college. I paid my way through college. Um, and so I made that really 
clear and prominent in my resume because I, I wanted to show like, yeah, maybe this is not great, but I did this other thing that, that maybe explains why and shows drive in, in another area, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, I think that that's the big thing is like, and I think this is like when you're thinking about like, you know, on the academic side, like training grants, you're writing like personal experience or like background and your scientific experience up to this point. And I think that those are great places to kind of address that or personal statements, cover letters where you say, yeah, look, like I urge you to look at me as a trajectory. I mean, another thing for me that that's happened, my postdoc was really, really short. So my postdoc was like two years long. Um, wow, that's so quick. Yeah. So basically because of that, you know, if you're competing with somebody who has a, has a tenure postdoc, their publication record is going to look really different than yours. Mm-hmm. You know, they had more time to collect data to get on papers. And so like a lot of times for me writing, like I, you know, I urge you to, to evaluate my, my publications as a trajectory rather than just overall is a really important part because you know, you look and you say, okay, well, this person did fine, but it's like, okay, well, yeah, that's great. But if I did this in 10, if I, you multiply this by, you know, five, which would be 10 years, it would be impressive. And so I think like sometimes people just don't have the time to look through this. And so giving that people want a reason to, to like, you know, think like that you're great. So saying things like, I don't know, like, you know, I played basketball in college and I found science my last few years my science GPA was actually really good. It was everything yeah. else that was really bad. <laughs> so, you know, you can say, hey, look, in these science classes that are relevant, I got A's. Those bad grades are not in those classes because I was not sure how this worked. I was learning, blah, blah, blah. And I think that stuff's really important to do. And, I, and here's the other thing, though. I don't think first-gen students understand how the review process for all this stuff works because we've never been on that side. Hmm. And so there's also this kind of, problem where you're writing these personal statements, but you don't really understand what's supposed to be in them because you don't know anybody who's written one before. And my, my, I don't know how I got into grad school. My grad school personal statement is like awful. I did my best. (laughs) But like if I helped one of my undergrads that was applying to grad school now, their personal statement would be amazing because I would make sure that it was right. But I didn't know anybody who could really help me with that stuff. So it's just, I don't know. There's all these layers of like, figuring out how to find people who can help you get where you want to go. And I think this is something that really is like kind of punctuates like successful careers. Nobody does it by themselves, nobody. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. what the really successful people are good at doing is reaching out and finding people to fill the gaps or finding people to give them ideas or help them do like I, so I'm submitting some grants coming up and I, I, I haven't, I have no experience with this foundation. So what I did is I looked up people who've gotten the grants before and I'm going to email them and ask them if they'd be willing to chat with me and talk about like how they prepare their application. I did not know you could do that. (laughs) I didn't realize you could just like cold email people and they'd respond to you, but they will. I cold emailed you. Yeah. Well, that's (laughs) when I was young, I was afraid I was going to be inconveniencing people. So I never did that. I just like figured it out on my own and it like happened to work out. But like now I'm like not afraid to just email people. What's the worst they're going to say? Like, no, or they just don't respond. Okay. Yeah. And, and, and like a certain percentage, and and I find it's a pretty high percentage of people actually want to give back uh, because they've been helped in, in, in their careers. And, And if they've been successful, like you said, they've, they've 
found people that will help. And so they're willing to, to do that for other people a lot of times. Oh, yeah. And here's the thing. If they don't, they great. You don't want to talk to them anyway. You want to talk to them. <laughs> That's the thing is like when, when I was applying for postdoc positions, I was like really afraid of sending these emails. And I was like, what if people are like annoyed or think I'm stupid? And like the one of my best friends who was a postdoc at the time, who's a faculty member at Wake Forest now, Mark Ferris, was like, well, if they're rude, like you don't want to work for them. So they've like actually helped you make your <laughs> decision. And I was like, I don't know, it never occurred to me. That actually was like, it was that he's right. Like, and so now my whole career, I've decided like, I don't know, I have a lot of skills, random skills that I could do something else. And so now like I go and I say, who do I genuinely like being around? Who do I think is a good person? Like, instead of like politically trying to like, align myself with people I think can help me. I just like try to align myself with people I think are good, neat people that I like being around. And my job is fun because of that. And if someone's like successful, but they're really rude, I just sit down and say like, do I really, I don't care. Do I really want to hang out with this rude person? No. No. And it's great. It's really liberating. You just like, (laughs) if someone's rude, you're just like, sorry for your loss. And you just like, (laughs) sorry for your loss. (laughs) Yeah. So like, I don't know. I think that's a thing that, that, that I realized kind of maybe early on because I just like don't like being around rude people is that like you can be successful if you just like hang around good people. And honestly, you'll probably be more successful because good people are going to help you get where you want to go. Yeah, absolutely. Such good advice. When you're thinking about um, the job market for, for academia, it's particularly hard right now because of COVID-19. Um, yeah. <laughs> and it's a it's it's a scary situation. So we don't you know need to go into like specifics of, of schools and hiring and things. But like, um, how do you think about that process? Like, I mean, well, first of all, um, like, what what what's the impact that you're seeing on on people's careers right now? And like, what what can you do if you really want to stay within academia at this uh, at this point right now? Um, but you're not sure what the future is going to be. It's a, it's a Tough question. Yeah, I was like, this is this is a rough one. Um, okay, so some schools are less affected than others. So, so actually, one of the interesting things about, um, and this is like hard to to like know, but the financial structure of schools can dictate how how affected they are by these kind of situations. Actually, Vanderbilt is like pretty good, so we're still hiring and kind of moving forward with a bunch of searches, which is nice. But I know a lot of other schools kind of are not. Um, I don't know. There's a, there's a bunch of kind of ways to do this. One is to kind of like, you know, look at expectations and like what you need and what you're looking for. Like some schools are going to be hiring freezes and that's just not going to be possible, but kind of like still going for it and seeing, I mean, if you're in a place where you can stay a little bit longer or apply for like, you know, transitional grants, I think that that's a, a good thing to say, okay, well, I was going to go on the job market this year, but maybe I'll wait. Um, yeah, I mean it's hard, right? Like the the best thing you can do is 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 try, right? You put out the applications and see what happens. And you know, honestly, I think sometimes you'd be surprised by what you find. I mean, for me, I applied really early thinking I wasn't going to get any interviews and then I got them. And so even in times like this, there are going to be some schools that are still hiring. Um yeah, I mean this is, I mean, it's a hard question because we don't know how this is going to affect things yet, right? So either yeah, anywhere. it's going to be like, oh, this is a transient thing where in a, in the year six months, places are back open and everything's fine, or it's going to be more long-term. And in that case, I think this is going to be a really kind of terrible thing for the scientific community. 
I'm hoping the NIH kind of steps up and, and realizes the disproportionate effect this has on, on, on junior people and people making the transition. If we don't kind of do something about that, I think we're going to lose like almost an entire generation of scientists, which is, is really, really bad for us. frightening. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I'm in an okay place, but like, you know, seeing the bunch of faculty who just started at Vanderbilt too, I mean, like they're also, even though they just got jobs, they're also struggling to kind of figure out how to kind of navigate this in this like weird time. Yeah, especially uh, if you're not computational and, and yeah, of- and and we have a lot of computational people here, so they're like they're doing fine, just like plugging away. Um, but a lot of the wet lab people like us, I think that there's there's we're shut down, and so there's been a lot of kind of struggle there with figuring out too, like how how do we facilitate people's careers? How do we make sure their projects are moving forward? Like what can we do? And and the answer is like it, the problem is that we don't know yet. It's yeah. depend on what it looks like and three months, six months, a year. And I don't know the answer. <laughs> I know. It's like a stupid question to even ask, to be honest with you. Well, <laughs> no, like... I mean, it's a good question. The problem is that it's just like so uncertain, right? Yeah. Like, a good, good question. Just no, no good answers. Yeah, right now. You, no, I think there's no good answers, but I think the big thing though, is to, to not like to just still try. I think one of the things yeah. that can happen in this time. And so this is a big thing that happens, I think with minority groups and women is that like, when there's uncertainty, a lot of times women and, and URM students will apply when they're certain that things are going to work out. And mm. I think that this is a really big issue because what happens then is in times of uncertainty, they're not submitting these applications because they're like, oh, it's not going to work out. And so I think the big thing is to to still try because I think there are still going to be schools that are hiring. There's still going to be things out there. It's going to be probably more competitive, but to make sure that like you still have that option you know, I get a sports person. They, my brother always says like the cheesy, oh, you miss a hundred percent of the shots you don't take. And I think there is something to that. I think when you see sure. a lot of people who got jobs and you ask them, how many applications did you put out? It wasn't one, it was 53 cycles in a row, you yeah. know? And so I think that even though it's kind of demoralizing and scary, I think it's still worth kind of putting your all in and, and kind of taking a shot and seeing, because you really don't, you really don't know. I mean, I look at the people interviewing at Vanderbilt now and think about like what I was submitting and what I did. And I'm like, how did I even get an interview? Like, like, like I have no idea what the search committee saw that they thought was great, but like they did. And it was something I don't have a cell paper, a nature paper, a science paper from my postdoc. I don't have it. But you have really solid work. I mean, like I, I know, like uh, Sarah Jones Lab, for example, like like you guys publish really good work and consistently, very consistently, right? Yeah, and, and so, I think that they looked at that and said, okay, well, this person can probably do this in their own lab, right? So even I think that the view, and this is something in my postdoc that was actually really stressful for me. Um, a lot of people were like, "You're never going to get an interview." And they were trying to be mean. I think they really thought this. They were like, you have to have a CNS paper to get an interview at a good school. And when I applied, I was really nervous because I was like, I don't have that. Am I going to get any interviews? And I am like the weirdest like person in the world because like my internal feelings of like anxiety and angst are totally uncoupled from my actions. So I felt all these things that like a normal person would be like, well, I guess I won't apply. And I'm like, I'm going to do it anyway, but I'm going to feel terrible doing it the whole time. So 
I did it and I submitted and I, I put together something I thought was good. I had everyone read over it. I, I went over, I like was like, what do you think? I, I, the thing for me is I knew that I didn't have the CNS paper. So when I wrote my research statement, I did it differently than any of the other ones I had seen because I thought if I'm going to stand out from the crowd, it's not going to be for outdoing the people at what they did better than me. It's going to be for highlighting what makes me unique relative to these people to say, hey, yeah, I may not have that, but look, this is why I'm a sure thing as an academic. And this is why my lab is going to do well. And apparently some people liked it, I guess. <laughs> so that's um, good advice. Yeah. I mean, this is the thing is you look and you say, okay, what do I have? That's my strength. And what do other people have? And like, how do I highlight that? And for me, it wasn't going to be the, oh, I have the, this one big paper. It was that I have a solid body of work over the last whatever many years it was at that point that answers a series of questions that are all tied together under this umbrella. And here's how I'm going to use this foundation to go forward in my own career. And this is what I'm going to do. And, and I think the big thing for me was that depending on what kind of school I went to, it was scalable. Okay, well, if you're a smaller school and I do a lot of teaching, great, I'm an analytical chemist. If you want somebody who does optical imaging and reinforcement learning and computational stuff and big data stuff, then it's more, <laughs> it's more and it's a bigger place. But yeah. I was scalable. I went in and said, okay, here's what I'm passionate about, but this is what fits in your institution and this is how I'll do it. And I think that flexible thing made it so I said, like, hey, you know, if if things don't go well in the first year, this is my plan. If they go really well, this is my plan for expanding. And so it was more of a, I don't know, a business plan that I wrote than it was just a, hey, I had access to a bunch of stuff and here's what I did before. It was like, hmm. this is how I'm going to run a lab. And the lab is basically a business. And this is what my benchmarks are. This is what I'm thinking. And this is why I'm the perfect person to do it. And I don't know. I mean, I guess it resonated with people because it worked out. Some people, maybe not others. I also got lots of rejections of people, if that makes anyone feel better. <laughs> <laughs> it probably does. Uh, <laughs> well, one last question on that. Like, was this, had you kind of premeditated the strategy um, beforehand and, and kind of cultivated that? Yeah. I mean, I think that I realized in grad school, like when I got to my postdoc, my postdoc was a, it was a big lab with a lot of really, really successful people in it. And I think in the beginning, I was really intimidated by everyone because they were all so brilliant and they all had like nature papers from grad school and they were all like amazing and went to Ivy League schools. And I just felt, I think I felt really inadequate in that environment. And I think that the environment kind of taught me that like, I have skills that other people don't have and they're not the same as them. And it, I wasn't going to be like the person who has the glam journal papers. I was the person who's like an expert in reinforcement learning and in vivo stuff. Or I could think about these big picture substance use disorder questions. And so I think like through my postdoc, I, I think I, it, it became apparent to me that like that was my strength. And mm. then that, then I wrote the, the statement like at the end, honestly, yeah. I wrote it now. Um, I definitely undersold myself a little bit. I think I, I, I had this idea that I should just write what I have personally done. <laughs> and so it's really funny. My lab does all kinds of stuff that I just didn't mention that I could do in this personal statement. Um, and now that I've seen other people's, I think that there's like definitely a bias towards certain people just like saying they can do things that 
they probably could figure out but haven't really done. And so I think there's like (laughs) towing the line thing there. But yeah, no, I mean, I kind of, I did plan it, but it was more of a life experience stress planning thing where I kind of realized I was different and that was going to be my game and that was it. And that was, that was my only option. And yeah, I mean, I think it's good. I think, I think figuring out what makes you different from other people is actually also often the thing that makes you the most appealing and stand out from the crowd. And so like fostering that is way more important than trying to be everyone else. That's such an important point. Uh, Thank you for, for making that. Cause I, I think that, um, Anytime you're on a in in the job market, um, the the more time you can be introspective and and um, really think about like what's the impact that you've had on people, on organizations, on on um, you know like who who you are and like what you bring to the table. Um, so a lot of times, I, I think that we undervalue ourselves in, uh, as scientists and and don't realize like well, we've done some pretty cool things and and like even if you're if you're even listening to this podcast that's probably the case and uh it's definitely so, the case like everybody, think... everybody has it's just that i think sometimes people think that because they haven't done exactly what other people have done that they haven't done good work and it's we're as scientists like this is who we are right we always want to like do things and understand things on the le- this like specific level. And I think just identifying the fact that like everyone is unique and we're all really good at something and figuring out what that something is for you. That's, that's the key. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thanks, Aaron. Uh, I mean, so many like gems of, of wisdom here. Um, <laughs> really appreciate uh, hearing your story and, and, the, the honesty, because I think it's, it's really helpful for, for people to hear, um, you know, how things, like what you were thinking as you went through all these different stages of, of your scientific career. And so um, really appreciate that and uh, excited for you to, you know, continue pushing for tenure. Yeah, let's, <laughs> so. let's see. We'll see. We'll see how long that takes now. <laughs> no, you're, uh, you're, you'll do great. Um, all right. Well, thanks, Aaron. Appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. This is the Once a Scientist podcast. I'm Nick Edwards, the host and producer. Tyler Colbertson is our co-producer. Caroline Sparazza manages our social media, and she and Sam Asinoff write our show notes. You can find some books that influence this guest at onceascientist.net and learn more about them in our show notes. Follow us on social media on Instagram and Twitter at underscore onceascientist and on Facebook at onceascientist. Reviews and ratings are really important to keep this podcast going. So every week, we'll pick our favorite review on Apple Podcasts, whether it's the funniest one or the most interesting, and we'll send out a free t-shirt to that person. So after leaving your review, send us a screenshot at nick at oncescientist.net, and we'll look through them. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.